Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Well, Robert, it's nice to see you again. Uh, actually, I, I, although I know you've been affiliated with our department uh, in neurosurgery, I still never understood that connection exactly. <laughs> me, me neither. Um, I don't know. I do stuff to rat brains, so I guess at some point it seemed like a good idea to Gary Steinberg. So now, now that's on the list of affiliations. But ah. yes, I, I was always sort of uh, mystified since I, I, I really, I uh, obviously I know who you are, and I think our paths have crossed a few times. I, I, I still was unclear where that uh, came from. So, well, thank you for being uh, with me today. Uh, uh, I'm sure this is um, becoming, uh, I'm not sure if mundane is the right word, but obviously uh, we're here to talk a little bit about your new book uh, on free will. Uh, <clears throat> obviously, I've seen some of the innumerable podcasts about that. Uh, Sam, Sam Harris is a uh, good friend of mine, and uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Likewise, actually, I got these headphones from Sam. Ah, sort of, did he send you his little recorder with it too? Yes, he did. <laughs> yes, he did. Here it is, right here. Y yes, he did the same thing for me. He's very smart about that. Although, you know, with Riverside and these others, you uh, they record on your computer, so it's not as much uh, of an issue. Yeah, but uh, back but up. Uh, and then you also did one with Scott Barry Kaufman uh, uh, as well. Yes, who of course turned out to live next door to my wife's cousin. So somehow we figured, <laughs> yeah, you know that that kind of string of small worldness. Yes, yes. So it is a small world, and it's always amazing how uh, the intertwining and interconnecting of so many of us. Uh, well, before we start on the new book, uh, I think at least some of my guests are interested in. Um, how you begin your journey. And of course, I think we all agree that who we are today often is a reflection of where we began. And maybe you can just give us a brief uh, narrative of uh, uh, when you got interested in primatology and when you became an atheist, perhaps. Uh, let's see, primatology when I was eight um, and decided that's what I wanted to do so that by like junior high school, I was writing fan letters to primatologists and stuff, um, which was rather odd. In high school, I harassed the chair of the language department into like letting me take a, a pace yourself Swahili course because I knew I was going to East Africa at some point. Um, so that was long lasting. And the atheism almost as long lasting. I was 14 and going through stormy adolescent period built around all sorts of things that were dominating some of the orthodoxy of my everyday life. And I still wonder what in hell happened there. But one night at two in the morning, I woke up with this realization that suddenly explained everything. Oh, I get it. There's no God. <laughs> and there's no free will. And there's no purpose. And it's been like that ever since. 
Uh, well, that's interesting. Uh, uh, so you must be a fan of Nietzsche or Sartre uh, or uh, those other existentialists? You, well, I, I try to avoid the despair, but you know, that, is, <laughs> that is a bit of a, a magnet. And uh, uh, and how how do you connect with our, our one of our friends Sam Harris, but the other uh, Daniel Dennett and uh, the rest of the four horsemen of uh, of uh, what do we call it? Is it free will or atheism or Athe all of the atheism. above? Yep. Well, I've I never got to meet Hitchens. Um, I got to host uh, Dawkins one evening once, and I found that to be very anxiety provoking. Um, he appears not to suffer fools gladly, and I was being one that night. Um, Sam interact with all the time. And Dennett, whose atheism I am greatly in support of and admiring, and whose views about free will I deeply disagree with, um, he and I are having a debate in about a month. Ah, where at? Uh, BBC. Oh, really? Oh, that should be uh, fascinating. Uh, we'll talk about him in a, uh, a little bit, uh, uh, perhaps. But uh, so uh, how did you end up at Harvard? Was that just a natural uh, event that occurred based on your own precociousness? Uh, or had you picked that out for some particular reason? Um, well, I picked like the Ivy League school that had the best primatologists, and then I picked the best state university that had the best primatologist, and then the best private one other than Ivy League that had the best one, and then picked the best branch of City College in New York that had primatologists and just waited to see how things turned out. Um, <laughs> so I, I was able to sit at the feet for four years of this guy who was like the king of baboons, um, while at college, and that was very enriching. And so, yeah, he was primates all the way, but just which which locale? Yes, well, you chose a locale. Maybe you can tell us about, I mean, how many uh, years have you been doing your field work? I spent, well, I, I went there first, Kenya, uh, East Africa, the Serengeti ecosystem is sort of where I hung out in the, the Kenyan side of that, a national park there, where I had my tent under the same tree for a couple of decades. Um, so I first went there for about a year and a half, a week after graduating college, and then lucked out and was able to go 31 more times for annual trips there before it eventually ran its course about a dozen years ago. So spectacularly lucky in that regard. So did you basically, if you will, stay in the tent the entire time? I, I mean, not obviously every second, but I mean, were you parked there uh, and that's you woke up every day at the same place and do it, did your field yeah. work? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not very technically adept at a lot of things, so it was a very, very primitive camp. And I have very few bush skills, but I have a very high tolerance for discomfort. So, like, I lived in horrible troglodyte squalor summer after summer. Um, let's see, nearest electricity was about 90 miles away, a uh, hole in the ground nearby for doing my 
personal hygiene, uh, hauling water from about 30 miles away, and, oh, I guess food was mostly just rice and beans and mackerel over and over and over for, like, days on end. So it was, it was uh, actually, it was heaven. I loved it there. This is how I always wanted to be. Wow, that's uh, and uh, I I assume uh, for a significant period of that time you were married. Uh, how did your wife respond to uh, that uh, desired deprivation? Well, she she arrived on the scene, thank God, um, about a dozen years into it, and eventually came out there with me for eight seasons, and wound up doing her thesis on baboons, but in a completely different area. She's a neuropsychologist, so that took some work to convince her committee that somehow that fit. Um, but the biggest change that we had was we brought a water filter and some bottled water. So uh, so after the first summer of her having the runs the whole time, um, which I'd been having every summer for 12 years, but somehow thought that was part of the, the romance of the it all. The experience? Yes, yes, the charm. <laughs> um, finally, we switched and quality of life got much better at that point, but she she loved it also, but perhaps different aspects of everyday life. Yes, yes. So the, this is some sort of uh, requirement to punish yourself that maybe do your heritage or... <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, well, that's fascinating. So... Uh, obviously, uh, most of our listeners are aware of the various books you've read, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, and I Love uh, Behave, and certainly uh, your newest book, Determined, is uh, quite fascinating. Is there any connection uh, between your work with baboons and uh, free will? Um, yeah, insofar as that's just another piece of thinking about primate sociology and evolution and physiological ecology and what all of that has to do with behavior, uh, whereas my lab life was much more what neurons and hormones and genes have to do with behavior. So it was just another domain for seeing how when you put all the pieces together there, there's not a whole lot of room for any free will. Um, and it got me into very different, the, the field work had me talking to psychiatrists and biological psychiatrists and like public health people and sociology types, whereas the lab work was all the usual reductive type folks. So it was, it was more just, I think, enhancing my palette of ranges of areas where I was seeing how behavior was not coming from conscious control. So, of course, uh, I think at least most of the listeners realize that uh, these debates about choice, uh, free will, agency, uh, you know, date back to uh, Greek philosophers such as Plato and Aristotle or uh, heading into uh, sort of the me medieval period with uh, Thomas Aquinas and others. Uh, and now we're here today. I, I um, so uh, the debate goes on. Uh, why, why do you think you're right and everyone else is wrong? Who's <laughs> <laughs> everyone, 
I nothing like phrasing it that way. Um, <laughs> I think again. Well, for starters, um, I don't think that any compatibilist philosopher that says there's still free will, despite the fact that we're made of things like atoms, um, I don't think they really have a leg to stand on if they're trying to invoke biology that doesn't actually exist. Um, so most of my disagreeings with, I think, come from people who say, yeah, 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 this field of science certainly makes you rethink the power of free will. And, oh, yeah, that sort of finding, that really does make you rethink. And thus you have the neurobiologists who say, yeah, a lot of, a lot of recent neurobiological findings really call, call agency into question. Um, of course, that on its own doesn't disprove free will. And then you got the geneticists who were saying, yeah, 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 a lot of these genetic behavioral effects really suggest a lot less volitional control over it. But of course, genetics doesn't rule out free will. And then you look at another one, another one, and simply because of my taste of like bouncing around a whole bunch of fields, um, you see not just that like any hole you would have in trying to rule out free will with prenatal environment or with endocrinology or with any one of those that, ooh, fortunately that hole is plugged by this other discipline. You look at enough of them and they're one discipline. They're all the same after a while. And like in a sense that, like if you're talking about genes, you're talking about evolution. If you're talking about genes, you're talking about early life epigenetics. You're talking about what proteins you made in your, in your brain 40 minutes ago. And it all forms one continuous bunch of biological sculptors interacting with the environmental sculptors. And when you look at that arc, there's not a crack anywhere in there in which you could shoehorn in a type of free will that says every now and then you could ignore all that stuff. Well, uh, it seems as though the compatibilists, as you, I think the term is, uh, Dennett and maybe even Sam Harris at Al, uh, uh, they want to have their cake and eat it too. Is that a fair statement? <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to be too snarky here, but um, somewhere early on in the book, I, I, I'm being a total jerk there when I'm doing this, but I'm seeing... <laughs> Like, basically, every paper I've read by a compatibilist philosopher can be reduced to the same three sentences. Wow, neuroscience has discovered all sorts of interesting, cool stuff recently. Sentence two, wow, some of that neuroscience stuff brings into question our very notions of agency and culpability and responsibility and free will. Sentence three, nah, not really. <laughs> like, that. that's... Basically, at some point, there's a jump where something is invoked in order to still pull free will out of the hat in a way that allows you to ignore all this other stuff. Have you heard a single theory that at least makes you think a little bit about the possibilities? No. <laughs> I mean, this is going to sound really like it took me a long, long time to think through why the people who say emergent complexity is a pathway to free will, what they were actually getting wrong with that. 
and, and it wasn't, it, it took quite a few years of me ruminating on that, but no, I think it's like self-evident. I, I don't understand how anybody can think that we do anything that is completely freed of everything that made us who we are. We're talking about compatibilists and uh, uh, Dan Dennett and Sam Harris at Al. And and actually, you had also mentioned uh, that uh, uh, Dawkins uh, was somewhat strident in his opinions. Um, he's, um, well, I greatly admire everything he has done as a scientist and as a public advocate for science and as one of the faces of atheism, humanism. Um, I'm not sure if I would want to be in a car with him on a very long road trip, however. I think I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Um, I think there are some strong stylistic differences there. Uh, no, I, I can understand that. So let me ask you a question because... Um... My perception, and uh, I may be completely uh, wrong in this, is that my view was that if you went to this very reductionist perspective of atoms, et cetera, et cetera, and you had a massive supercomputer, that you could predict everything that would occur based on that information. And that is the reason we don't have free will. But is that a completely wrong perception, or is that just additive to your own uh, uh, views from a neurobiological point of view? Um, it's definitely additive because what you've brought in is sort of, you know, reductionism gets you only so far. Reductionism is very good for figuring out how to fix the gears on a clock, like if clocks still have gears. Um, but it's very bad at understanding like a complex emergent thing like a brain, um, which is where chaoticism sweeping in in the 60s and 70s um, was so incredibly important, showing that nonlinear, non-additive systems that are unpredictable in the same way as like the three-body problem in physics is intrinsically unpredictable are not anomalies they're all the interesting stuff. And you take a, virtually any system that you think you've got complete predictability in because it's nice and linear, and, so, and you just stress the system sufficiently, and it's going to become chaotic. And that's all the interesting stuff. And what that does, well, what that does for sort of like your average lab scientist who's highly reductive in their thinking is hopefully being somewhat of a warning sign that like we can only understand so much by understanding every little itty bitty piece of like our systems and adding them up together again because they won't add up the same way. Um, but what particularly sort of got my ire is people who have decided, aha, chaoticism and its implicit unpredictability that's where we get free will from. And there's a bunch of people who run with that, including some people who really like ought to know better um, in terms of where they're coming from. And the basic problem there is a mistake that they think that just because something is unpredictable, um, 
that doesn't mean it's undetermined. Well, that's my point is exactly that, that uh, uh, because it may seemingly be chaotic, at the end of the day, it, it probably isn't. Yeah, there's structure underneath, and the ability to predict something is not the yardstick for like whether something is knowable. Um, there's lots of stuff that we're not quite up to knowing, and our using us being able to know as a criterion for what, uh, for how to assess the nature of the universe is pretty thin ice in lots of ways. Well, this probably intersects uh, with consciousness and so on some level in terms of these debates, I think. Well, uh, yes. <laughs> yes, unfortunately, that's all I'm willing to say at this time. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I think one of the challenges for many people is um, how do we deal with moral responsibility? Well, we... Just to, again, be sort of subtle here, we throw it out the window because it is completely intellectually bankrupt. Um, it makes no sense to blame or praise or punish or reward anyone for anything they've done because none of us had control over it. None of us are responsible for the sort of people we became. So moral responsibility completely goes out the window, which, oh my God, that's so radical and the world is going to collapse. if we, we do that all the time. We've learned how to do that forever. We figured out, I don't know, 400 years ago or so that like really ruinous thunderstorms that wipe out your crops are not due to old ladies with no teeth who are casting spells witchcraft isn't for real and the appropriate response isn't to burn somebody at this we figured out oh there's no moral responsibility in that domain that's not how thunderstorms worked and then we learned it about this and that and that and that and each time the world becomes a more humane place well that reminds me of pat robertson believing that uh hurricanes were the result of too many gay people i think uh <laughs> Uh, of course, until he yeah. had a hurricane uh, happen where he was at, and then it uh, wasn't real anymore. But <laughs> <laughs> then God in mysterious ways. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, we we never we, we we shall never know. So, uh, but how does that then affect us in, um, you know, if you want to call it real politic in terms of dealing with the, this issues, recognizing no one is responsible, but how do you perform? prevent potentially further carnage by these types of people? Well, again, that seems completely like what you're going to have, like nobody is ever made to like be held accountable for what they've done and there's no retribution and there's no, and everything will fall apart and everything will not fall apart because again and again, we're able to construct worlds where rather than having punishment and blame and a sense that punishment is a good in and of itself as a moral virtue, we could subtract all that stuff out and construct alternative models. For example, like you have a car whose brakes don't work. You don't know how to fix them 
and it's dangerous. This car is a danger to society. If it's out in the street, it will injure innocent people. And there's an intervention. You put it in the garage and you don't drive it. But you sure don't go in every day with a sledgehammer and bash the car on the top because it's evil for having its brakes fail. You, you sure don't tell them it doesn't deserve to be able to drive in a park on Sunday afternoons. It's just something that needs to be contained and quarantined. And the absolute minimum for that, and not one smidgen foot more, and without any moralizing. And... We do that all the time in ways where people now would say, oh my God, if you take away blame and punishment and all of that, what kind of world are we? We do it all the time. We have another circumstance where there's a type of person who's dangerous, who's dangerous to the people around them, who will harm innocent people. And what do we do if that's your five-year-old kid and they're sneezing a lot, you don't send them to kindergarten tomorrow because they're going to get everybody else sick. And there's a rule. If your kid's coming down with a cold, please keep them home. You don't tell your kid they've got a lousy soul when they're home the next day. You don't tell them they can't play with their toys. We've managed to subtract out a notion of moral responsibility and instead substitute a system where you know, sometimes completely out of control, like a kid can wind up being the sort of kid who sneezes on other kids and gets them sick, so we need to protect the world from that. And we can do it, and that's a hell of a lot more humane than telling the kid they've been consorting with Satan, and that's why they're, they're sneezing or like burning old ladies at the stake because they obviously called, caused the snowstorm. Well, so that brings up a couple interesting points. So Obviously, in the United States, certainly, we have a um, prison system that is not uh, uh, related to uh, reform, but promotes recidivism. In some ways, does this intersect with that perspective of how we punish people? Um, in a sense, um, it goes by the wayside because contingent on like most of our views of rehabilitation is the person has to be cured of their badness. The backbone, the assumption of most sort of reconciliation and restorative justice programs is the person has to admit to their badness and understand the impact that it had and the pain that it caused. And if there's no badness, if there's just this is how this person turned out. None of those make sense. You like make sure you latch the gates so the cows don't run out and you make sure the car isn't let out of the garage and you make sure your sneezing kid stays home and you make sure dangerous people can't endanger other people. And conversely, at the same time that like criminal justice makes no sense, meritocracy makes no sense either. And the notion that some people have earned being treated better than other people because it turns out they're good at something or other that they had no control over. And you can see people have their conditions at that point, just like there's the, the panic of, oh, my God, you're going to have like murderers running around because there's no responsibility. No one will do anything about them. The flip side in terms of the same worry with meritocracy is, oh, my God you're going to have a brain tumor and they're going to pick some random person off the street to do surgery on you tomorrow because we've gotten rid of the meritocracy. 
No, obviously not. We protect people from dangerous murderers by constraining them so that then, and we protect people from incompetent neurosurgeons by having that be a training process, but we sure don't teach the neurosurgeon in the process that they have a better soul or that they intrinsically deserve to be at the front of the line of life's considerations because they lucked out and had a good capacity to memorize factoids and had good dexterity. What the hell? You mean I did all of this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was waiting for you to blow up at that. Yeah, those those entitled neurosurgeons who just have a lot of motor neurons attached to their thumbs and No, no, well, but you know, this is like the statement that uh and this is the argument you, you hear, uh, like uh, some people have said, George Bush won the sperm lottery, right? Uh, and uh, uh, yeah. so many of these other uh, situations or, you know, I think one that uh, uh, has bothered some people, especially unattractive girls, is the women who have the right genetic uh, combination that makes them very attractive and appealing. And on many levels, they get a free ride. And uh, uh, as do men with symmetrical faces, all these great like uh, mock jury studies showing more attractive faces are less likely to get convicted of both sexes. Um, well, and also, I guess, race, as you were just. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Big time there. And. Like, how screwed is that? You've got, like, asymmetric zygomatic arches, and as a result, you're less likely to get hired. You're more likely to spend your life unloved. You're more likely to be convicted of a crime. Like, what kind of world is this that sees that as, like, being just? So, in the face of all of this and this knowledge, uh, what gives people comfort in being a human being or uh, do we fall back on the existentialist view and just say it's all a waste anyway? Well, the the latter is sure hard to resist. Um, but here's here's where I actually like finally like avoid the 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 true abyss there with that is thinking through. Okay. You read a book about how there's no free will or you listen to a podcast and you come away convinced of that and you're totally demoralized because you realize you're not really laudable for your advanced degrees and you helped that old lady across the street that time and that's nothing that's truly praiseworthy because praise is irrational and somebody loves you because of the way their vasopressin receptors work, not because you are lovable. And Oh my God, this is so demoralizing. And then what you realize is if the notion that we have no free will, the notion that people get what they deserve is false, if that bums you out, that means you're one of the lucky ones. You're one of the ones with the advanced degrees. You're one of the ones who has found love. You're one of the ones, all of those things. And for most people on this planet, the notion that we think it is okay 
to treat some people better than others for reasons they had nothing to do with, and other people worse than others for reasons they had nothing to do with. For most people, being freed of that mindset is a wonderfully liberating thing. If you're bummed out because an absence of free will makes your, like, CV seem less impressive, uh, you are not an average human. Most humans, this is freeing. Well, and, you know, I think in some ways it's an interesting point because if you carry that, uh, I, I'm not sure if it's abstract thinking further, but fundamentally then it's a zero-sum game in that there is no difference between any of us at the end of the day or what we uh, assess is important or different is completely irrelevant. It has nothing to do with us or our own um, hard work. And so, in some ways, it seems like an extraordinary uh, equalizer of every human. Yeah. And if you take that to its logical extreme, the truth is that there is no person on Earth whose pain and fear and loneliness and deprivation or anything less, anything of that sort, is less meaningful than your own. You are entitled to nothing more than any other human. There's no human who is entitled to less than what you get. And that's the only logical conclusion. And I can function that way like once in a millennium because it's really hard. And like, ooh, even if like intellectually you go through all this and realize we're biological machines, it's a big ask to try to function that way and like, I think this way intellectually all the time, and I sure can't actually live up to my intellectual principles. I get pissed off at people. I, I feel pleased if somebody says, ooh, nice job. And at least for a millisecond, I think I am a, a better human because of that or some such crap. And yeah, no one says this is easy, but you know, we can get there. We've gotten to the point where we don't feel like burning old women at the stake when the weather is bad. We've gotten to the point where we don't yell at our kids because they've gotten a nose cold and now they can get other... Some of these things that were not intuitively obvious back when, if you and I were sitting around in the Middle Ages, we could be just as compassionate and reflective and all of that as we are now, but it still would have made sense to us that some people sleep with Satan and that's where thunderstorms come from and you need to burn them at a stake. It would have seemed intuitively obvious until it stopped being intuitively obvious. And stuff that seems intuitively obvious now, like being able to work hard is a virtue rather than, oh, you lucked out and you got a good prefrontal cortex. Like that seems intuitively obvious now that effort should count for more. And it's going to seem absurd somewhere in the future when people figure out, no, it's all the stuff you had no control over that will predict how good you are at impulse control and emotion regulation. So stuff that's obvious now, people shouldn't be able to like beat their horses to death and people shouldn't be slaves and four-year-olds working in factories is not a good idea. Um, were good ideas at one point and you and I would not have questioned them. And it's just self-evident now that that's not okay. And all sorts of stuff that just seems, well, obviously a murderer 
Like they deserve some punishment. They they shouldn't just be kept from hurting people and not an inch more than that. That's going to seem as irrational to us at some point as burning supposed witches at the stake. This is just the time and place we're in now. Well, two responses. Uh, one is that we see uh, divisiveness among political parties, and uh, certainly maybe both, but certainly one at least, lives in an illusionary world of make-believe. And uh, why do you think there's such a propensity, Pete, for people to create these uh, narratives that promote hate or divisiveness when on some level you think they know better, and in fact many of the politicians do know better and they're just putting on theater. Uh, what are your thoughts on that in terms of our humanity, if you will, or is this just part of the same dance that we've been talking about? Um, I think two levels of questions. One is this big picture view that people do not become damaging humans unless they are damaged. People do not become hateful unless they've been taught to you know, be afraid of the future and novelty and strangeness and novel people and they've been hurt and they've been taught that they're unloved and blah, blah, all of that. So like none of this comes from nowhere. And in a world that's more just, like our amygdalas are not going to be quite as active and that will be a good thing. Um, but framed a different way, like why are we facing these problems? Because whether you are a lab rat or a mountain vole or a rhesus macaque or a chimp or a human, if you are stressed, one of the best ways of reducing your stress hormone release is to beat up on an innocent bystander. That's one of the like central findings in like behavioral endocrinology. Displacing aggression is a stress reducer. It feels good. We release dopamine from our reward centers, our, our mesolimbic dopamine pathways, when we get to punish someone righteously. It feels great. And it shows we've got an uphill battle. Well, I think that's probably the, the point is it's a, a very uphill battle, maybe based on our own. Uh, although uh, certainly I, I don't look at evolution in any way as steps to perfection, but uh, it certainly shows that uh, we have a very long uh, way to go here. But in some ways in reverse, if you had the nominal notion that there is this oneness about everyone, and this may get it, be getting into the metaphysical world, uh, of this, that everyone is connected, that, as you said, no one uh, should be uh, acknowledged for things of which they had absolutely no control, which brings us essentially down to this idea of nothingness other than our presence, does that have any impact on, on uh, sort of how one sees the world, or is that just uh, uh, irrelevant uh, metaphysical babble, gabble, whatever we want to call it? <laughs> <laughs> um, it? It has enormous implications when you force yourself to think through this. This, this philosopher, John Searles at Berkeley, has this really funny shtick about how he's a determinist, and he'll say, 
that doesn't mean that like I go into a restaurant and the waiter comes up and wants to know what I want to order. And I say, well, I'm a determinist, so I'm just going to sit back and see what my brain orders. Um, you know, we, we can't step back very readily, um, but we have to try to force ourselves to in circumstances where it matters, like when we think we understand what counts as just treatment of people or when we think we understand why something is done, someone has done something and things of that sort. Um, but yeah, it's not easy at all because, you know, just like unicellular organisms, we're biological machines, but we're really, really weird ones because now and then we can see the gears. Now and then we could know that we're biological machines and that could be scary as hell or demoralizing as hell or liberating as hell in some circumstances. And it's this completely weird thing that we're a species that knows that we're machines and we know that when we feel something, it's not real, but nonetheless, feelings feel as if they feel as if they feel real. And like good luck detaching your sense of well-being from that on a regular basis. Exactly. But th then, of course, then if you accept that notion of a lack of free will, uh, uh, I mean, for many people, I imagine if if they really embrace that, that would create for many people an existential crisis uh, in regard to their own existence or purpose. Yeah. Again, if you're one of the lucky ones, turn that, turn that existential void into just feeling grateful that you turned out to be one of those humans who got enough protein prenatally that you're not cognitively destroyed by it. Or you turned out to be one of those humans where instead of thinking about free will, you're dealing with warlords rampaging through your hamlet. Or you turned out to be one of those humans who's good at whatever and could make the world better that way and just feel grateful that, like, damn, my hands can do that when they have a scalpel in them. Isn't that nice? Isn't that great that I turned out to be one of those who could make the world better in that way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go think that way all the time. Lots of luck with that. I think that way intellectually all the time, and I function that way like 1% of the time. But that's really what we have to kind of aim for. And we can do it because we don't burn old ladies at the stake anymore. So we could do it in other realms as well. Well, but doesn't that then lead us, though, uh, I mean, on the one hand, we don't burn ladies at stakes, but we have a criminal justice system and a whole parts of society are that are completely unjust. On one level, we can sit there and intellectualize and say, yeah, that's unjust, that shouldn't happen. But how does that have any relevance if there's no uh, free will? I mean, what we're doing in some ways, it seems, is even with the awareness of it or understanding this on a cognitive level, uh, we don't do anything uh, about it or we make false judgments about what's good and what's bad when, in fact, it would seem to me there is no good and bad. Yeah. 
And that's tapping into one of the one of the knee-jerk things that people have when they say, what do you mean there's no free will? Of course there's free will, which is the incredibly dangerous conclusion to reach that if there's no free will, nothing can change. Things change enormously. People change enormously. Entire cultures change, all of that. We don't need to, to prove that to anyone. And the fact that change occurs doesn't mean that there's free will. There's this clarification. When we think we have chosen to change, we have not. All of the circumstances that have made us who we are now, parentheses that we had no control over, everything that made you who you are now set you up so that this circumstance right now is going to change you in this particular way. And the way, the way I, you know, you, you go and you see a documentary on the Dalai Lama and you and two other people, and you sit there and you come out of that and you are so inspired that you vow, I'm going to do this good thing every single day. You've changed your behavior. Your behavior has changed more properly. And the person who sat next to you comes out and says, oh my God, that music in the background, I need to learn about world music. That's like so soothing and all of that. And the third person comes out and says, what like treacle, what emotionally manipulative garbage, all of that. And the second person goes, takes gamelan lessons or something. And the third person comes out and says, I'm not watching one of those ever again. All of those people are behaving differently afterward as a result of this experience but they are all behaving differently in different ways because of what circumstances made them into at the moment they sit there and they watch this documentary. They didn't change and decide, I'm going to go learn how to play the zither or some such thing. Um, they were changed by that circumstance such that that's the transformation that that experience did. And that happens all the time. And where we make our only mistake is deciding that we were the agents of that change. Well, certainly, I, I don't think there's any question that most people go around and as an, uh, an analogy, if you've had different types of trauma while you've grown up, this impacts uh, for many people every decision they make be, uh, because it's happening at an unconscious level. So they may think they're getting in an argument uh, with somebody about a reasonable thing when, in fact, it relates to either an experience they had a little bit earlier with their spouse or they ate something that wasn't very tasteful. And now they're uh, translating this into something that's completely unrelated. Yeah, exactly. And then filling in a, a pseudo-logical attribution afterward as to why it makes total sense that they did what they did. Exactly. Two, two, a couple other questions. One is, we all have heard who are interested in this free will issue about Labette's experiments. And uh, what is it, uh, uh, the potential, what does he call it? The um, readiness potential. Potential, yes. Uh, and interestingly enough, of course, that was one of the people that used, uh, uh, that those experiments were used as a justification for not having free will. But I saw a recent study that talked about these two individuals who repeated the experiments, and they said if the uh, reason for their action had some personal significance to them, you did not get that uh, potential occurring 
beforehand. Have you heard of that study? I've seen ones like that. If you make somebody do something where you press this button and a charity will get money, whereas if you press that button, nothing will happen, which one, where it suddenly has significance, emotional significance, some such thing. Yeah, that's this whole literature. This was the work by Benjamin. I always thought it was Libert, or it might be Libert. Libert. Uh, well, Libert. Uh, one of the Libert. One, Libert. one of those. <laughs> one of those. One of those back when that showed that when you wire somebody up with EEG tracings at the time and fancier brain imaging stuff since then, um, that when somebody thinks they have made the decision to push a button, you can tell from their brain about a half second before that that the brain has already decided, oh my God, there's no free will. Your brain knows before you think you even made a decision. And, you know, that was the 1980s. And you saw a paper a couple of years ago. That's 45 years later. People are still clawing each other's eyes out out of how to interpret those studies. Is it showing you your brain intends to do something before you're consciously aware of it, or your brain gets an urge to do something, or your brain intends to intend to do something? And like people are still like, you know, in our world, you publish something, and if people are still bothering to point out that you were completely wrong a decade later, that's like immortality to have that kind of influence that people are going on saying he's still wrong. Totally interesting, totally fascinating. When does volition become an act versus a conscious awareness in our brain? But it's got nothing to do with the free will debate because it's ignoring 99% of what's going on, which is, okay, that's great that we're fighting over whether that person's intent came before or after you could pick up this waveform from the EEG. Where did that intent come from in the first place? How did this person be the sort of person who would take a Psych 101 class and sign up to be a test subject? How'd they turn out to be someone who would show up on time? How would they, that they turned out not to show up and steal the grad student's computer and run out the door? How to, where did that intent come from? And that's from the, the biological influences one second ago and one hour ago and one century ago and all of that. Like whether somebody knew they had the intent and whether they knew if they could have done otherwise is so boring because that's the last three measures of the symphony kind of thing. How do you turn out to be the sort of person where that's the kind of thing you would intend to do? So uh, referring back to comments you made about uh, uh the nature of us perhaps even being in this conversation today relates to our privilege or our genes or whatever the celestial bodies uh, uh, decided to give us. Uh, uh, so for the subset of people who don't have the privilege or the background or the education to even have this discussion, for those of us having the discussion, where does this leave us? Uh, you know, we talked about this existential crisis. We talked about the reality that no one deserves praise for who they become in a positive sense, nor in a negative sense what they've become. So does that just leave us as sort of rats in a maze that we live and die and we're done? Well, kind <laughs> of. 
except for that one. Oh, okay. Thanks. Thanks for making me so happy. (laughs) (laughs) Except for that one thing that we can know our machineness and we could know that even though our feelings aren't real, they feel real and pain can feel real enough that it stops being interesting or relevant after a while to go through, whether you're feeling that you feel that it's real or you're feeling or all these, you know, just going through the loops of that. Um, nonetheless, at the end of the day, pain is painful and happiness like is a good thing. And even if it is suspect on an ultimate level, it's kind of a source of like a smidgen of meaning somewhere in there to decide that your time was well served if like you went about trying to make for less pain for people and more happiness even if we're all just machines yes if you believe there's uh something behind purpose and meaning i mean could could you not uh, use a converse argument if you're a sociopath, uh, whether by choice or not, uh, <laughs> and, and say, you know, I am so happy I killed a hundred people. I feel so good about myself. It, it is, I mean, fundamentally, that's the same thing. We've just subtracted good and bad out of it. You can just flip the where the pluses and the minuses are, <laughs> and where the brownie points are, and such. Yeah. Um, and like whether you're dealing with societal meaning on that level or if you're like a pain physician wishing there was a way to quantify pain so that you could more objectively like medicate your patients and things like that. Yeah, this is fuzzy subjective domains that we're in and like nobody's saying it's like easy for how to turn our essential meaninglessness into nonetheless, it's a good thing if you go, like, pull that person out of the fire. Um, But nonetheless, that kind of is what's needed to sustain most of us and in the process make this, like, a more humane place. So on the one hand, we have no free will, but on the other hand, at the end of the day, uh, there's a advantage or at least a plus on the uh, uh, spectrum of how we should behave in a society fundamentally, which is try to uh, benefit others or do good, while obviously that affects us in a positive way from a physiologic or mental perspective. Is that a summation that's correct? Yeah. Yeah. That that seems pretty good. (laughs) Okay. I'm going to switch topics here. My last question uh, is, um, where do you think uh, AI is going to put us or have an impact on us in two minutes or less? (laughs) And the answer is, I don't know. I don't understand anything about it. My wife had to teach me how to use a mouse on an Apple computer back when, and I've gotten very, very like little mileage of sophistication since then. I don't know. I don't understand it. My, My son is a is a CS, machine learning, Stanford grad. And when you catch him in a good mood, um, he will say, because of brain-machine interfaces and stuff, the first immortal person is already alive. And then when you catch him on a bad day, he says, eh, 20, 25 years, that's when the machines are going to harvest us for our carbon. 
So, like, who knows? But yeah, I am. I am no one to expect any insight from. Well, uh, this reminds me of the bet that Chalmers and uh, Christoph Koch made. Uh, now we're 25 years later, uh, and they still have no clue about consciousness. Yep, yep, and I would not bet on understanding it 25 years from now either. Indeed. So, in summary, uh, we're all here. We have no free will, <laughs> but it's worthwhile to uh, try to improve the world in general. Yeah, I could I could get on board with that, sure. <laughs> well, listen, uh, Robert, uh, uh, it's been a pleasure, and uh, it's nice to Likewise. connect. And uh, we'll we'll see how this compares with those other podcasts. <laughs> well, yeah, yours is better. Okay, okay, I feel okay. good about myself now. You you built me up, even though it's completely <laughs> meaningless. Right, exactly. <laughs> Keeps me going most of the time. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Okay, well, listen, uh, thanks again. Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts, or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com. Mm -hmm.